Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. China's done some more assertive things recently. We'll discuss one of them, the Chinese Communist Party branches popping up at U.S. universities. On Dollar Vote, our series that examines conscience-driven consumerism, we'll consider the pressure on corporations to act on gun violence. Then we'll hear from one of the architects of modern world music, tabla master Zakir Hussein, performs in our studio. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. There are some big things and some small things that make China look more assertive these days. On the trade front, China feels secure enough economically to refuse to discuss President Trump's two toughest trade demands. On the Taiwan front, Beijing is pressuring airline companies around the world to follow the party line on Taiwan's sovereignty. And on the education front, China's attempting to go into universities, including the University of Illinois and Northern Illinois University, and set up communist party cells aimed at Chinese students studying in the U.S. Bethany Allen Abrahamian has been writing about the latter two at Foreign Policy, and it's nice to talk with you, Bethany. It's nice to be here. Well, you've gotten kind of a big reaction to the story about uh, Chinese party cells opening up at uh, U.S. universities. Um, explain what was happening here and what's been what's the modus operandi here. Sure. Uh, so the Chinese Communist Party under Xi Jinping has been working to expand its global reach in many ways, but especially among party members. So what it looks like has been happening in, with increasing frequency in the past two to four years is that universities in China, so that the party committees that are that are on the campuses of universities in China have been uh, insisting that Chinese students and scholars from those universities who go abroad, you know, whether that's in the United States or Germany or um, Portugal or Greece or Thailand or, you know, many other countries, um, have been insisting that these students who are party members form party branches or party cells on the campuses of their host universities. All right. And so in the United States, this has been popping up um, at the University of Illinois, Northern Illinois University, University of California, Davis, all sorts of places. Um, is this okay? Is this legal in the United States to do? I think that's difficult to say. Um, you know, there, there's legal and then there's, you know, what universities would, you know, permit according to university guidelines. Uh, so... Um, at the university level, uh, universities typically allow, you know, freedom of assembly, freedom of speech uh, for student groups. I think the challenge with these kinds of groups is that this is not Chinese students themselves saying, I really love the party. I really love Xi Jinping. You know, let's form a group on campus open to anybody to discuss, you know, the, the wonderful Communist Party ideology. That's not what this is. This is, you know, the ruling uh you know, a ruling foreign political party it rules over an authoritarian state in China, giving, you know, top down directives 
to Chinese exchange students and visiting scholars to form these groups. Um, from what I can tell, uh, these groups have not um, followed university procedures, that, not that I'm aware of. They have not followed university procedures to register these groups on campus. You know, they haven't opened, they don't make their meetings public. They haven't opened up um, the, the group to, you know, any, any university student as a member. And often it's the case that these are the sorts of guidelines that universities would require their student groups to have in order to be a, a permitted student group. Um, now, in terms of whether or not this is legal in the U.S., um, if you look at the foreign Agents Registration Act, um, off, which uh, is is not very well defined, um, and there is an exception in there for you know educational uh, institutions and endeavors. So a great a degree of um, a great lack of clarity as to whether or not that would apply to these on-campus groups. But off campuses, uh, you know, I believe it would be permitted to form these. It's but if you, it, it might be the case that they would need to be, to register with the Department of Justice, especially um, if they're going to be, um, you know, talking about their events outside of their own groups uh, to the U.S. public at large. What kind of things are the groups doing once they're formed? What would um, is it is it harmful? Is it um, is it bad? Some of what's going, so I think it's important to understand the point of these groups. And the point of the groups, um, th this is very clear, the, the, you know, Chinese Communist Party, um, and even the groups themselves have been uh, very clear, you know, universities back in China have been very clear about the point of these groups. So, you know, here's an example. One reason they're, they're forming these groups is to resolutely resist the corrosion caused by harmful ideology. Now, that's a direct quote uh, from the PLA Daily, which was reporting um, on one of these groups formed by the National University of Defense Technology, uh, which is a Chinese university, and setting up these, these groups abroad. Uh, so the, 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 the point of it is to make sure that if Chinese Communist Party members go abroad, now there's about 80 million members um, in China, if they go abroad, uh, you know, Xi Jinping does not want them to be influenced by the ideas of democracy, ideas of, you know, rule of law, uh, liberal values, freedom of speech, these kinds of ideas. You know, he wants, President Xi wants, you know, control over the party, control of the members, doesn't want them to bring these, quote unquote, harmful ideas um, back to, to China. Now, is is that harmful? Um <laughs> I, 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 you know, personally, I, I wouldn't support that kind of activity. I, I think where it really gets out of line is when it's used as a way to report on other Chinese students. So I spoke, in fact, with um, a Chinese student at the who participated in an exchange program, a semester-long exchange program, on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Um, this student was there in the fall of 2017. And the student told me that when uh, they returned to China, the students who had been essentially made to be members of this party branch were required to sit down in one-on-one -on -one meetings, uh, you know, with an adult back back on campus, and talk about the potential anti-party thought of of other students. I, you know, th that is concerning. The Chinese Communist Party, uh, you know, it attempts to um, exert extreme ideological control back in China. That should not be happening on the campus of American universities. That is inappropriate, and that is an overreach of power inside this country on our campuses. We should have academic freedom, and that freedom should extend to Chinese students who are here in this country. 
Well, are the universities in the U.S. going to stand up for the freedom of the Chinese students while they're in this country to have academic freedom and to explore ideas that might be off the charts for uh, communist China? Is that something? I noticed that um, the University of California, Davis, shut their uh, party cell down uh, for the last fall. Um, so they didn't actually shut it down. The the person, the group of people who founded the branch, they themselves shut it down um, under the con- concerns that it might be uh, go against local laws. They didn't specify what local laws they meant. Um, so no, the university in that case did not shut it down. Um, I- I'm sure I-, I know that universities, uh, you know, desire for their all of their students, uh, Chinese students, any student to have academic freedom and to feel, you know, safe and secure on their campuses. And that's what uh, the University of Illinois at uh, Urbana-Champaign told me, uh, that they, you know, aim to provide for the academic freedom, safety, and security of, of all their students. I think it's a very sensitive issue. Um, what we really want to avoid and what, what would be harmful is if Chinese students writ large come under suspicion. That would be incredibly inappropriate. And I think that universities are very sensitive to that. You know, this is a case of a, of a foreign political party trying to control students. It's not, uh, you know, it, it, you have to, it's important to understand that the Chinese students themselves are the, are the target. They're the victim of this. Um, and they need to be protected are, while they're inside the U.S. borders. Are universities compromised by reliance on foreign students for um, high tuition, out-of-state, out of out-of-country tuition? The University of Illinois, you know, is trying to make a, a buck on – um, on students from abroad, and Chinese students are the biggest uh, chunk of that. Ooh, that's a loaded question. Uh, I cannot speculate about any individual university. Um, it is certainly the case that Chinese government officials, when they visit the U.S., or uh, even you know people from the consulates and embassy here, believe that they can use. Chinese students and the tuition that they pay as a lever of power over universities. That that most certainly is something uh, that is believed by Chinese government officials. Um, you know, whether or not that is actually a lever over universities, um, I, I think that it's possible. Um, but, but, but again, I, I think a, an even bigger concern is that the Chinese students themselves must be seen always as individual human beings who are deserving of all the protection and, and all the services that universities, you know, uh, promise them by accepting, accepting their money. So it, it's a very, you know, fine line to walk. Um, I'm talking with Bethany Allen Abrahim and Abrahamian, and she is writing about what's been happening with Chinese Communist Party cells popping up in universities in the U.S. at foreign policy. And I wanted to ask a question about um, a lot of universities go back to China and have um, joint ventures in China. There's 2,000 educational joint ventures between Chinese and overseas universities in China. And in those situations... Um, there's also been the Chinese Communist Party is inserting itself and they want to have uh, people on the board of trustees now and uh, there's a lot of concern about academic freedom uh, at these institutions. Uh, it, this all seems to be part of the same deal. Exactly. Um, you know, so 
what we're kind of coming out of uh, looking at China is there was a period of I'm going to I'm going to call it relative openness. It wasn't exactly open, um, but you know, in the 1990s, uh, in the 2000s under Hu Jintao, it was easier. You know, there was a, a, a greater relative. Degree um, of you know an idea that you know China wanted to welcome foreign institutions. They wanted to have these partnerships. What it seems like is is under Xi Jinping, there's a much stronger um, there's a reluctance to kind of compromise in that way on the part of the party. Um, so I think what we're seeing is um, on you know on the part of, of Chinese party officials, um, they don't value. That partner, those partnerships, or the, that kind of engagement, as much as they used to, and are therefore more willing to put more pressure on it because what they've now prioritized ideological control over openness and engagement. And universities um, around the world and in the U.S. are having to deal with that. Um, and I think you know, there's programs that had been considering opening a new campus there. Are you know reconsidering that, and programs with that currently have you know some kind of joint program there, are having to make some tough decisions. You know maybe they want to pull pull back a little bit. Uh, we haven't seen anyone fully pull out of their uh, joint venture, but I know that there is a there's a lot of concern. Um, to, you know, and, and there's discussion of what what are the red lines? At what point? You know, is it is it having um, you know a party member on our board of trustees? Is is that a red line? Uh, you know, if they start trying to, you know, reach in uh, into the classrooms and say, you can't talk about this, you can't talk about Tiananmen, you can't talk about the Dalai Lama, is that a red line? You know, what's at what point do you say the compromises that we're being asked to make is too much? And I think that's an open point of discussion right now. Bethany Allen Abrahamian has been writing about China and the Chinese Party's cells uh, popping up at universities across the United States in foreign policy. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about your article, and we'll keep an eye on what China is doing with education. Great. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll have Dollar Vote, our series that examines conscious-driven consumerism, and we'll consider the pressure on corporations to act on gun violence. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. This era of late capitalism has made us think of how to be ethical consumers. For the second installment of the Worldview series Dollar Vote, here's journalist Liz Lazar. In the wake of the mass shooting that killed 17 students and teachers on Valentine's Day in Parkland, Florida, hundreds of thousands of people rallied in the nation's capital and around America for the March for Our Lives the protest demanding meaningful gun control laws. Students of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School organized the march. Though survivors of a tragedy, these kids did not emerge sentimental or scared. They're organized and outspoken, and they're aging into the electorate very quickly. But Emma Gonzalez and David Hogg and their classmates don't want you to think of gun violence as their problem or as a school safety problem or even as a state problem. 
They know that despite disproportionate media coverage, the mass shootings that plague affluent suburban neighborhoods are statistically few and far between compared to the daily drumbeat of poverty-related violence that plagues low-income black and brown communities. There is a lot of racial disparity in the way that this is covered. If this happened in a place of a lower socioeconomic status or a black community, no matter how well those people spoke, I don't think the media would cover it the same. And I think it's important that we point that out as Americans and realize that, because we have to use our white privilege now to make sure that all the people that have died as a result of this and haven't been covered the same can now be heard. It's sad, but it's true. They want you to think of guns not only as an American public health problem, but as an American business problem, one that an NRA-enmeshed Congress alone cannot be relied upon to fix. They could have blood from children spattered all over their faces and they wouldn't take action because they all still see those dollar signs. Having borne witness to the slaughter wrought by weapons of war and harnessing their heartbreak as fuel for a campaign that refuses to limit its platform to the parameters of their privilege, these kids have leveraged all variety of media to connect far beyond the palm-lined streets of Parkland, which, before the massacre at Stoneman Douglas, was known as Florida's safest city. The Parkland kids know that just a few days after the tragedy in the so-called Gunshine State, where Floridians claim the most concealed carry permits in the country, it was just another Friday on the neglected blocks of the far south side of Chicago, where despite Illinois' much stricter gun laws, Six people were shot dead and 22 others wounded over an otherwise uneventful weekend in disinvested neighborhoods reeling from chronic unemployment and underfunded public schools, places where it's often easier to get an illegal gun than it is a laptop, thanks mostly to lax gun laws in Indiana and other neighboring states that source over 60% of the street guns recovered in Chicago, according to City of Chicago's 2017 Gun Trace report. And the students in Parkland, Florida, and the students on the south side of Chicago know that without highly unlikely interstate cooperation and big, dramatic federal moves, both of which remain legislatively elusive, there will be lots more completely preventable gun carnage. That's why roughly a million kids coast-to-coast streamed out of their classrooms a few weeks back as part of the national school walkout. And why another million Americans of all ages all over the country marched demanding an end to gun violence in all states, in all communities, from the fancy suburbs drilling for the next school massacre to blighted public housing blocks that lose hundreds of its youngest and brightest to desperate street economy turf wars, or the most prevalent and insidious of all firearm-related deaths, suicides by gun, which account for nearly two-thirds of all the nation's gun fatalities and remains the second most common cause of death overall for American youth between ages 15 and 34, surpassing mortality rates from birth defects, heart disease, the flu, pneumonia. This is also why Emma Gonzalez, the Stoneman Douglas High School senior, whose striking shaved head is now a famed symbol of the youth movement for gun reform legislation, turned her family's lush Parkland backyard into a grassroots poolside meeting place. She recently opened up her home to a group of Chicago students from the street violence prevention program called BRAVE, an acronym for Bold Resistance Against Violence Everywhere. Brave kids worked hard on Chicago's hottest blocks, long before the Parkland tragedy dominated news headlines. The trip was sponsored by Arne Duncan, former Chicago Public Schools CEO and U.S. Secretary of Education. He's a friend of Father Flager, the senior pastor at St. Sabina Church in Chicago's Auburn-Gresham neighborhood, where Brave is based. 
I spoke with the group's coordinator, Lamar Johnson. He accompanied students from St. Sabina Academy and North Lawndale College Prep to Emma Gonzalez's home in Parkland, Florida. Seeing those young people connect together, even though they live in different cities, have different backgrounds, different experiences to gun violence, they do have one thing in common, and that is they want to try to help change the dynamic of gun violence in this country. I asked Lamar, how did they find common cause, free of embitterment, with kids who until recently never knew the dread and horror that marks coming of age in places so profoundly under-resourced? The first thing we had to do was not deny it. We had to embrace it because we understand that the reason why Parkland had the platform is because they're a privileged community and because they're white. So we had to address that. And when we was in Parkland, they addressed it. Like, we didn't, we didn't bring it up. They addressed it. They said it. And it, it moved us. Some of us got emotionally. Um, it brought tears to some people's eyes, including myself, because when you break that barrier— There's like the elephant in the room that nobody wants to address in this country, but teenagers are. It is because of the parking issue people are paying attention. And even Secretary um, Arnie Duncan said in one time in the meeting, he said, America is not going to pay attention to gun violence issue until white people get shot. While this generation of Parkland, Black Lives Matter, and the Dreamers are definitely more unified than older generations, they're not alone in their fight for gun control. A new Quinnipiac University poll shows 66% of Americans now support stricter gun laws. That's the highest number in a decade and more than twice the opposition. Still, despite a clear public mandate from all sides of the tracks and all generations, the Stoneman-Douglas students feel lawmakers didn't listen as they crafted and voted on gun control legislation last February in the Florida State House, where they rejected a ban on semi-automatic weapons. They didn't stop at the state level, though. Senator Rubio, can you tell me right now that you will not accept a single donation from the NRA in the future? Now... While two-thirds of the country getting behind the students' blue-in-the-face activism has not prompted dramatic action from Washington... So, so right now, in the, name, in, the name, in the name of 17 people, you cannot ask the NRA to keep their money out of your campaign? I think in the name of 17 people, I can pledge to you that I will support any law that will prevent a killer like this No, but I'm talking NRA money. No, no, because... Uh, uh, matter of fact, Guys, I bet we can get people in here to give you exactly as much money as the NRA would have. But it's not. I understand. And you're right. Wall Street, hardly the usual bastion of resistance, has been quick and clear in its decision to cut ties with the gun lobby. The corporate exodus includes big airlines like United and Delta and big insurance, MetLife and Chubb, huge sections of the travel industry, Wyndham and Best Western hotel groups, along with six rental car firms, including Hertz and Avis Budget. Even more dramatically, Citigroup recently announced that it would not do business with any retail clients that sell guns unless they require customers to pass a background check, restrict sales to people under 21, and refuse to sell bump stocks or high-capacity magazines. Even corporations that continue sponsoring gun-advocating media have come under increased pressure. Advertisers fled in score when Fox News anchor Laura Ingram attacked Parkland survivor David Hogg on Twitter. She's only apologizing after a third of her advertisers pulled out. And I think it's really disgusting the fact that she basically tried promoting her show after apologizing to me. 
quite telling that The Daily Action, which is a grassroots political calling service that went viral after Trump's election and has dominated Capitol Hill phone lines since, providing scripts to their subscribers and challenging members of Congress to fight back against what the group describes as extremism and threats to democracy. Recently, they didn't just connect their users with lawmakers as they normally do. Instead, the app routed them to Allstate Insurance Company, where thousands of callers left messages urging the insurance giant to stop advertising on the Fox program. I spoke with the campaign director at Daily Action, which recently merged with the organization MoveOn. What we've seen is that Trump has created an environment where corporations have more power than pretty much at any point in our country's history. But at the same time, we know that consumers are able to vote with their dollars and that companies, businesses are beholden to the consumers. So if we can harness consumer energy, focus them on companies like FedEx and Allstate, we can create a kind of change that can help create more political change that we actually want. Part of the success of the group is how painless they make it for users. To sign up for Daily Action, simply text 228466 to join. In other words, text ACTION. Daily Action isn't the only new group keeping track of corporate gun industry ties. UFundGuns.com is a website that sprung up in cooperation with Parkland students that helps people call or tweet big companies imploring them with ready-made scripts to use their leverage to help reduce gun violence. UFundGuns recently shared that BlackRock, one of the largest investment firms, announced it would create index funds that exclude gun manufacturers and retailers. Unlike their competitors, all of which are major shareholders for publicly traded gun companies. Although they're united in the spirit of their missions and work together to tackle gun control, the Parkland youth and Chicago youth acknowledge their tasks are peculiar to their respective communities, which suffer wildly different symptoms of the gun epidemic. And these distinctions, in turn, frame how they see the corporate role in furthering their cause. I asked Lamar Johnson if he thought putting pressure on corporations to drop their NRA ties will help his gun violence prevention mission on Chicago's South Side. Yes and no. The thing that we're trying to change in Chicago is different. With Parkland, yeah, they go after, you know, things that's policy, legislation, corporate. We have strict legislation. We have policy against guns. Our gun violence issue is a cultural issue. And it is a class issue. It is an economic issue. So... We can go after policy and corporations all day long, but if you never change the culture and the climate that creates violence in the first place in Chicago, then your work is not effective. We're trying to go after corporations and legislation that help us change the culture. And by doing that, we're asking for donations. We're asking to help us fund our after-school programs, fund our youth centers, fund our community to try to rid our community of a culture of violence because we see that our young people, many of them go to crime and go to violence is because they have no alternative. Parkland efforts have mostly centered on getting companies to distance themselves from the NRA, which lobbies for less regulation on semi-automatic and automatic firearms. But AR-15s are the weapons of mass shootings, not of blight-borne street violence in Lamar's neighborhood that erupts in the void of legal employment. It depends on the corporations on what their intent is when they do support gun violence prevention. Unless they're willing to put jobs in the black communities, then I can say that they're trying to help prevent violence for everybody. Because we could put pressure on corporations to ban an AR-15, but the guys I know and the kids I know in my neighborhood are now walking around with AR-15s. 
they, they don't have access to AR-15s. So even though Parkland stands with us, there's still a difference that the overall thing we're advocating is for gun violence prevention and gun violence reform, that's yes. But in terms of a corporate level, what they can do for my community, which is Auburn Gresham on the south side of Chicago, put some of your businesses in our community to provide jobs for our people. To what extent these CEOs were more earnestly moved by the Parkland students' grieving appeals to disarm than their political counterparts? It's hard to say. But there are other reasons boardrooms move faster than Congress on the gun control issue. One, the cold, hard cash. NRA reported to have spent more on Republican 2016 campaigns than any other outside group, 30 million of which bet on Trump's 2016 election alone. What's troubling about these political contributions is that most of them were spent by an arm of the NRA not required to disclose its donors, which are under increasing scrutiny. The FBI is currently investigating whether a top Russian banker with mob ties to the Kremlin illegally funneled money to the NRA to help Donald Trump win the presidency. The NRA did not respond to our repeated requests for comment, nor have they denied these allegations to date. But Democratic Congressman Jared Huffman of California recently brought the matter to the floor. He opened with a joke. For a guy that claims he doesn't drink, President Trump sure loves a lot of white Russians. Uh, Specifically, we need to know whether Russia worked through the NRA to illegally move funds in support of the Trump campaign. Here's what we do know. We know that McClatchy and others have reported that the FBI is actually investigating whether Alexander Torshin, deputy governor of Russia's central bank and NRA's main liaison in Russia, used the NRA to funnel millions of dollars to support Donald Trump's candidacy in 2016. We know that in 2016, Donald Trump Jr. had dinner with Torshin, who is a close ally of Vladimir Putin, also is someone accused of money laundering. And they had that dinner at the NRA convention. We know that the NRA spent tens of millions of dollars on the 2016 elections, including $30 million to support Donald Trump. That's three times what the NRA spent to support Mitt Romney when he was the Republican nominee just four years prior. So we need to think about and ask this question, where did all that money come from? Hmm. If the NRA used foreign funds to help elect Mr. Trump, that's, of course, not only a clear violation of election laws, but could be a major threat to the integrity of our democracy. Today, the NRA takes money from a Russian mobster to finance a presidential campaign. Tomorrow, why wouldn't they accept funds from any American adversary to sway the midterms? That said, the NRA is too small a club to have much influence beyond Republican lawmakers. The group's iconic cloud is built on the fact that many of its 5 million members are single-issue voters who turn out like-minded constituents at the polls. A recent Pew Research Center poll found that gun owners are 80% more likely to have contacted their local officials than Americans without guns. So while 5 million highly motivated voters are a political game-changer for GOP primaries, that number is a drop in the bucket to an airline like Delta that flies 180 million passengers a year the overwhelming majority of whom want more gun control. Then there's the age thing. Younger voters, which turn out to polls in much lower numbers than older voters, are less important to politicians. But to businesses, an 18-year-old is the most prized and powerful of all consumers. They set trends, and they have an entire lifetime of income earning and spending ahead of them. 
which is a big reason politicians continue to sleep on the kids, even as big businesses get behind them in droves. For the majority of the country that favors harder gun laws, this is a promising, if not a somewhat cynical, development. Think about it. Whether or not politicians care about the kids in their marches for their lives, they definitely do care about the money. And the White House will listen to its corporate cronies, whose bottom lines and staying power are, whether they like it or not, in the hands of these kids, who don't seem to be buying into what Martin Luther King called the triple evils of racism, economic exploitation, and militarism. On our pilot episode of Dollar Vote, we shared the findings of a 2017 Cone communication study that reported 87% of consumers said they'd be more inclined to purchase a product because a company mirrored their social values. The numbers are even higher among millennials and younger consumers. So, for the overwhelming number of Americans who are frustrated by politicians not doing enough or acting too damn slow to thwart the next mass shooting or the next drive-by shooting or the next teenage suicide, ahead of the midterm elections and the next March they could consider casting their dollar vote with businesses that have divested from the gun lobby. That said, to Lamar Johnson's point, companies cannot earnestly tout gun reform unless they're willing to provide jobs to the same gun violence-plagued populations that not only purchase their products, but moreover, often turn them into the white, hot, bad and bougie, money-making youth trends, thanks to cultural misappropriation of all things ghetto and the pop glamorizing of gangster life. In the end, we're not consumers. We're citizens. And spending doesn't replace marching or voting. But tell that to Washington. Meantime, the kids are handling business. And that was Liz Lazar with the second installment of Dollar Vote, a worldview series that investigates issues of ethical consumption. Listen for the next Dollar Vote on how companies are dealing with the refugee crisis and what the gig economy has to do with it. Coming up after the break, Tabla Master Zakir Hussein performs in our studio. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Tabla master Zakir Hussein is in town. He's at Symphony Center for a performance this evening at 8 o'clock, and he's in our studio right now, and it is a thrill to have you here, Zakir Hussein. Oh, it's great honor to be in this beautiful place. Thank you for having me here. I think um, a lot of people probably don't know um, about your family history, but your father was a great tabla player, and, yes. he, and he brought you to the instrument at the age of three, I was kind of, stu- you probably cannot remember a moment where the tabla was not in your life. Yeah, no time to waste. Just get right in it. <laughs> but it, it didn't really happen at the age of three. It happened at the age of two days. Oh my gosh. Yeah. When I was brought home from the hospital, uh, the normal tradition in India is that you hand the child to the father and then father whispers a prayer in the, in the child's ear. And when I was handed over to my dad and he put his lips to my ear and started singing rhythm syllables, 
And my mother was very upset, saying, what are you doing? What is this? Are you supposed to say a prayer? And he said, but this is my prayer. I pray with my rhythm. I pray with the syllables and the language of it. It's like a chant. And since he is going to be a drummer, that was already decided. And so I'm going to start him early. So that's what he used to do. So by the time I got to be three, I had all this mumbo jumbo in my head. I had no <laughs> clue what to do with it. It was just like swirling around. And then his students started to kind of point the way and I started to sift through stuff. So at three, but he didn't start teaching me until I was seven. Uh, till then, I had to prove that I was really interested in it and I wanted to do it. So he came to one of my school concerts, you know, kids doing things, and he heard it when I was seven. And, and then he said, do you want to learn? That night, he talked to me about it, and I said, yeah, I seriously do. So he said, we'll start in the morning. And, and morning was 3 a.m. He woke me up at 3 a.m. And, he and, means business. And, and, and started teaching me. When everybody else slept, it was quiet. There was no disturbances. So routine was 3 to 6 in the morning. I would be with him learning. And then 6 a.m. I'll get ready and get ready to go and do my schools and stuff and so on. Start that. <laughs> well, we've got your tablets here set up and um, we got the well, Johnson's you know, baby I powder really and everything. And, and we're, or we've got a Facebook live stream mm -hmm. if people want to watch mm -hmm. uh, Zakir Hussein play tabla here in our studios. You can go to Facebook Live and check it out at WBEZ Worldview. Mm -hmm. And um, you're going to perform something. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I have to tell you that tabla is a North Indian drum. Yep. And it's traditionally used in the classical music and, and is the most uh, commonly used accompanying instrument. And, and one of the reasons for that is because it has a pitch. can be tuned to the tonic or the root note of anybody you're accompanying or any song. And the, and the bass drum can have many notes. So... Zakir Hussein, live in our studio. That is a thrill, and it's so interesting to see that happen so close up and see all those different sounds coming out of your hands. And the well, drums. this instrument is a very versatile instrument. It's just probably the only drum of its kind where it actually is a rhythm instrument as well as a harmonically supportive 
instrument as a a la bass. So it combines both. It's just two hand drums and uh, can do all these little things and everything happen at the same time. So And, you know, Keith Jarrett, the piano player, right. was once asked a question in his interview and said, if you weren't a piano player, what instrument would you play? And he said, I would play tabla. Yeah. And he said, why? Well, he said, because as far as I can tell, it's the most complete instrument. <laughs> so <laughs> we are on thing. it. <laughs> now, tell me a little bit about Cross Currents, the or group you've been playing with the last couple of years. You're at Symphony Center with them tonight. And they just sound like they're all just unbelievably crack players. And it's some kind of improvisational heaven. Well, first of all, it's a great experience to be with them and a humbling experience to be sitting next to a great master like Mr. Dave Holland and 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 watching this incredible energy come out of uh, Mr. Chris Potter's uh, saxophone and 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 the other members of the group which are from India Louis Banks and uh, uh, Gino Banks and Sa- uh, Sanjay and Shankar Mahadevan uh, the idea of cross currents came because we all know in America that Ravi Shankar came and brought a whole lot of bunch of Indian musicians from India over a period of years and introduced Indian music to this part of the world and influenced uh, people like George Harrison or John McLaughlin or John Coltrane and so many other greats uh, with Indian music. But very little is known about before any of that happened, decades before that, there was a major influence of music from this part of the world on India. And it came through Hollywood musicals. Uh, Esther and Ginger and uh, Gene Kelly and Cole Porter and all those guys. And and so they uh, made a great impression on the mis- mixed breed of musicians in India. And when I say mixed breed, it was kids of English and Indian parents, French and Indian parents, Portuguese and Indian parents. So they were these great musicians who were there and, and didn't know what to do with their music because India had become independent at that time. And so uh, Indian film industry was born. And uh, Indian classical musicians were asked to make music, but they wanted them to make music that would be commercially viable. And so somehow a a nice uh, partnership was formed, and these Western musicians came into play. And that's how it all happened. And so what I wanted to do was bring Cross Currents, paying homage to the influence of Western music, jazz, swing, bebop, and all that, uh, and big band music, and, and, and bring those musicians who had nurtured and preserved that style of music in India and give them a chance to be seen and heard here and, and share their music with uh, the great masters like Dave and Chris Potter and so on. So that's how Crosscut. You are a serial collaborator. You have collaborated with every kind of music possible, it seems. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you still learning things? I mean, is this uh, you're you're credited with being an architect of the world music scene? This is uh, an, an amazing thing. Well, every collaboration is a learning experience. My father told me once, "Son, don't try to be a master; just try to be a good student, and you'll get by just fine." And that's a fact. People like George Harrison can send, sell multi million records. But his thirst for knowledge brings him to Ravi Shankar. He wants to expand. He wants to learn more, whether it's Bela Fleck or Edgar Meyer or Charles Lloyd or anybody who I've worked with. We all came together because we all wanted to learn more. So that process allows us to reinvent ourselves or find a new way to express ourselves, a new language, vocabulary, to be able to say the same old thing. And so, yes, the thirst continues and the excitement of these interactions that point to a new idea or new way of being able to speak what you already know is 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 the is the reason why we are here 
Is there somebody you haven't played with yet who you really are dying to play with? Oh, my God. Uh, there are so many people. I mean, there are probably people out there who I don't even know or who I would love to work with. Yeah, and uh, uh, I mean, I've played with anybody from Sting or Earth, Wind and & Fire and uh, Van Morrison and all those guys I've worked with. And, and, and I've worked with symphony orchestras. And I just did something that I hadn't done before. Last week, I had a premiere of my string quartet, which I wrote for Kronos Quartet. Wow. And so that happened. And, and, and uh, I wrote a tabla concerto which uh, premiered uh, last year. So these are things that I had never done before. So it's happened. And uh, the more you play with the people you've played with, the better you get at interacting with them. And so I'm really looking forward to a trio tour with Bela Fleck and Edgar Meyer in the fall. Wow. How much of the Indian classical can you hang on to in these kind of collaborations? And how much do you kind of let slip away because it's too um, harmonically different? Well, I don't differentiate. I don't uh, uh, hold fences in between us. I mean, it's music. And and if you're going to bring to the table the idea that I can only do this because that's what I know or learned, then you're stuck. The idea is to be able to open yourself up, to be able to uh, be a f- be fluid in your ability to be able to play. The, the notes are the same in both parts of the world. Rhythm is universal. So as long as you vibe well with each other, understand each other, and your friendship is deep enough to know what you are all about inside and out, that translates into music. Music is conversation. So you converse. Well, let's hear another song. I'd love to hear another song here on the tabla. And we're on Facebook Live if you want to look at WBEZ Worldview and see Zakir Hussein uh, play the tabla. He is at Symphony Center tonight at 8 with Cross Currents and Dave Holland. Um, Let it rip. Okay, so the language of tabla, you know, which also translates into words and phrases and sentences. So here we go. Dha. Dha gena kat. Zakir Hussain. He's here in our studio and he's at Chicago Symphony Center tonight at 8 p.m. with his 
group cross currents. I I have got an idea for you. If you get a camera and do a close up of your hands and just blast it out there to everybody in the in the symphony center and concerts, that would be really fun for people because it's so cool to see your fingers going like that so <laughs> so fast at everything close up. Do you ever do anything like that? That's, that's uh, I haven't amazing. done anything like that. Uh, my hands are a little shy. They're <laughs> camera conscious, you know. They don't like to be seen until they're properly made up, you know. <laughs> But no, nobody has done that. But uh, I think in India, they have come in close when you do some TV concerts. But um, even they are, they don't get that close. How do you stay in shape? Is there something you do? Is it just practice, practice? Uh, we practice. There's a, you know, routine that we are in. Uh, the main, you see, Indian concerts go on for like six hours, seven hours, eight hours. So you really get used to uh, playing long sessions and your hands get used to that. And, and one of the things is this is a muscular tradition. So you don't whack the drum. You play easy. So uh, therefore, you don't really hurt yourself in the manner that some other drummers and people would do. Well, it's a great pleasure to have you here, Zakir Hussein, and I hope a lot of people get out to Symphony Center tonight and enjoy uh, Cross Currents and uh, your friend Dave Holland and Chris Potter and all the people you're with tonight. It should be a super show. Thank you so very much. Uh, tomorrow on Worldview, we're going to talk about anti-black racism among non-black people of color. And uh, we're, we are taking a few phone calls on our hotline on that topic. If you've had your story of racism that's not captured in the term people of color, the number to call is 312-948-4880. And the show on anti-black racism uh, amongst non-black people of color will be tomorrow on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.